Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Into the Bytecode. Today I sat down with my friend Henry Stern. Henry is absolutely brilliant. He used to be a research scientist at Protocol Labs and worked on Filecoin's consensus protocol. And after many years of thinking through problems related to data, privacy, and security, he recently co-founded a new company called Privy, where they provide a suite of API tools to store and manage user data off-chain. In this conversation, we talked through a set of topics that Henry has a unique point of view on, starting with the question of the seeming trade-off between privacy and security on the one hand and UX and convenience on the other. We talked about uh, principles he has in mind in designing an off-chain data system. We talked about how Privy does encryption and key management, how they do permissioning, how they think about storage. And uh, the middle parts of this conversation got a bit more technical than other conversations we've had on this podcast, but I think we took the time to explain the different puzzle pieces. And I personally learned uh, from this conversation. And with that, I'll leave you to it and hope you enjoy. One of our differentiators uh, as a company and as a product in the space has to be around ease of use because too much sort of protocol first tooling in this space is so hard to use. And I think unless tools come out that make it easier for developers to take on user data privately in the next year and a half, the default is let's dump this shit into Postgres. And so uh, we've taken the tack that basically we're going to start off way sassier than a lot of folks in Web3 <laughs> in order to build for an easy experience. Um, but obviously, I think that also means that it can be really easy to lose sight of where the company goes, which is why building that sort of product roadmap felt really important is let's remember that the sort of end goal is, is self-sovereign identity in a very real way. Like users should control their data, even if we start with developer control in mind. If we're kind of talking about the Web3 ecosystem, a lot of people take this point of view of designing a protocol first and starting from the most idealistic version of the future that we're trying to see. And this kind of inadvertently creates a multi-year roadmap of building these technical puzzle pieces that have to all come together to results in a good user experience. And one thing that I appreciate, you very intentionally with Privy made the decision to start from where the world is today, what the user experience is that you're trying to create, what developers can actually integrate into their applications, and then have a longer term roadmap about how you can back into more of a kind of like open protocol. Yeah, I think there are three main reasons for it. At least I'm gonna, I'm gonna try to make three up on the fly, but uh, but I think this is true. <laughs> and the three the three of them are first a question of personal preference, how I like to build. The second is a question of I think sort of emergent behavior in the space and what happens if you try and build something too far out in the future. And the third is I think the fact that there's urgency around this because of what happens if we don't build this quickly and the time it takes to build protocols. And so um, maybe going a little bit deeper into each, uh, the first was personal preference. Like ultimately, I think one of my frustrations with protocol building is the fact that decisions you're making, and, and you know, to be fair, I was working on uh, the consensus uh, protocol for a layer one blockchain. So this is, you know, kind of the in bottom brick of a lot, exactly, of, of a lot of this stuff. 
but it's uh, the, the decisions I was making with regards to block time or the number of blocks that could be admitted in any uh, given round, um, things like that had a product effect on a multi-year timescale. And I think I really missed being closer to users. Uh, what does it mean in Web3 to build with a user in mind? And it seems like there's a pretty wide divide between like consumer products in Web3 and uh, developer tooling and or infrastructure in Web3. And I wanted to get a little bit closer to a place where we could talk to developers we were building for and get feedback on like a daily, weekly, monthly basis. Um, so that was, that was the first point of why we've opted to build in this way, which is to say to build a, a much sassier product than the protocol. Um, the second reason is about emergent behavior, which is to say the market is changing so quickly. And I think we can set a flag for, you know, this is where we hope to be in 10 years. This is what self-sovereign data should look like. And this is what it should mean to be a user uh, sort of surfing Web3 when it comes to your personal data and the experience you have around giving people permissions and access to your personal data or giving protocols permissions or access to personal data. And yet there's a bit of futility in trying to build the 10-year thing because the market changes out from under you. And basically, I did not want us to be building sort of a religious vision for, you know, follow our path to the holy land and we will guide you. But instead, it had to be a tool that could be useful to developers in this space yesterday because so many of my friends I was talking to were sort of saying, well, I've built this prototype. Uh, it's, a, it's a DAP. And I really like it, but also I'm never going to ship it because to make it any good, I'd have to take on user data, which I don't want to do. And I kind of felt like there was some tension between basically the 10-year journey path where we made a promise of, you know, if you suspend this belief and you build with us for 10 years, this is where we get you versus there's a real need for developers today that we can try and solve. And even if that means being a little bit less perfect in what we ship up front, uh, we, we can ship something that's useful tomorrow in a way a protocol maybe will take a little longer. And the third is the urgency, which is, again, I think like Web3 is, is a bit of an a knife's edge where you've basically got two schools of thought. Now you've got sort of the Web3 OGs who are like, yeah, this everything happens between the, the client, the, the, the front end and the chain. Uh, but basically there is no backend to Web3 product. There is no cloud um, or sort of uh, state being kept anywhere but on chain. And then you've got this sort of new entrants in the space who are used to Web2 experiences, who maybe are coming from Web2, who are mm -hmm. like, well, I can't build a good product at all. So fuck it, I'm gonna go back to what I know and I'm gonna drop user data into a database, into a warehouse or something like that. And I really worry that basically um, users, I think, have shown that they will choose convenience and delight over privacy because privacy is such a nebulous promise. And so unless we can sort of help level the playing field today and make it easier for developers who want to protect their users to do so, I really worry that basically the space is going to take a left turn in the coming year and a half and move towards an area in which developers are dumping user data into databases in order to build user experiences. And we end back with the same data silos we had in Web 2. And Web 3 basically just becomes a business model. You have a chain to make money. Otherwise, your infrastructure is exactly the same as it was before. Yeah, it's a, it's yeah. a very astute observation that this is happening. And yeah, the, the dichotomy is really there between developers who've really bought into the ideals of Web3 of like having self-sovereign data, pushing power to the edges, all these sorts of things. And they elect to build products that basically completely forsake user data at the expense of user experience, right? And I was reading some of the stuff you've written and you have a lot of these good examples of, you know, you don't get a notification to your email when you're about to get liquidated or, you know, you don't get an email. I mean, just the lack of email communications or these sites telling you about what's happening with your on-chain behavior is a 
direct fallout of the fact that developers basically don't want to even hold a user's email address, right? And then, so this is, this is the one hand which people do kind of hold to what they believe in at the expense of a good product experience. And then there's the other side, which is, it's kind of taking the, 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 the convenience of users don't actually care about privacy to like, you know, ultimately like the blockchain is, is say a global settlement layer for, for value. And like, we can just do that there and everything else can still use a web two stack, which is a very narrowed definition of this kind of like overarching vision that we've all been thinking about. By the way, the notifications example to me is a really good lens through which to look at the space because it's so obviously a clear UX problem that we have in this space. And there are others. Uh, there's the issue that, you know, your wallet is not your identity. And so you're trying to log into a product with a given wallet. You switch wallets. You know, I have five or six wallets with which I collect the NFTs. Um, and I, I, there's no unified uh, user experience across all of them. So there's a, there's a number of, of things that fall out, I think, from the fact that we don't have private state. We don't have off-chain state in sort of a Web3 native way. But I think notifications are a particularly good example because you've got all of these schools of thought playing out in the many startups that are going after this problem. You know, you've got like the XMTPs and the EPNSs of the world that are doing, as I understand it, at least on-chain native notifications. You've got folks like Notify Network or others that are building messengers on top of, you know, the wallets and, and uh, uh, public key cryptography rails that we have rather than on-chain in a precise way. And so the, the, the interesting thing for us is we are kind of trying to pick what are the uh, good beachheads uh, in which we can prove out the value that having a sort of Web3 native uh, off-chain data storage, private data storage for your users, uh, where can we prove out that value, even though ultimately whether notifications as an issue will be solved through a product like Privy or through any of the companies that are dealing with that and only that is a question to which obviously we have no, we, I don't know. All I know is that uh, there's a number of ways in which developers are hemmed in because they don't have off-chain storage that they can reliably touch uh, in a sort of non-siloed way. Yeah. I mean, one of the things you've written about, which I wanted to talk about, was you asked this question of, is the decision between security and privacy on the one hand and convenience and user experience on the other, is this a real invariant of how internet services are built? Like this is just going to be the case or is it a kind of path dependent thing that has emerged and we've gone stuck in this like local piece of the landscape that kind of sucks. And then how do you think about this in the context of like the next couple of years with like how Web3 evolves? Why is this the time to build Privy, for example? Like why couldn't you do what you're doing a few years ago? Is it something special about what's happening right now? Is it just a kind of over 10 shift that's happened with like crypto? Let me start with the, the first question, which is the, the question of path dependency versus invariant. Is there some, uh, uh, at least as I've understood your question, is there some invariant in the tension that exists between good UX, convenience, ease of use, and on the other side, sort of privacy respecting technologies and things that empower users? And I was you know, I think the way in which, to me, this question is most urgent today is in the question of custodial versus non-custodial systems in Web3. Right. And I guess to define it, the question I think is, who owns the keys at the end? If I have assets in a Coinbase account, uh, Coinbase is the custodian. It is right. a custodial solution. If Coinbase decides to cut off access to my assets, as they have with, say, uh, various uh, Russian nationals who are on sanction lists, 
uh, I can't get my assets back. And the part of the core ethos of crypto early on was I am dependent on no centralized third party in order to own the things I own, including my data, hopefully, uh, even though that was obviously not in the, in the, in the original white paper. Um, I think on the flip side, obviously, key management, wallet management, all of it sucks pretty bad as infrastructure today. And so I think there is a tension between the democratization of access to Web3 and our ability to have non-custodial experiences, yeah. to have ones where users are custodying their assets. So convenience very often means adding a middleman. And yeah. adding a middleman means being disempowered. So I think part of it is there is tension between the two at a fundamental level where you have to choose between basically doing things in a more manual way and, and sort of at a cost of, of, of UX um, or doing things more easily, but at a cost of control. And it's the design space of like different mechanisms. It helps you kind of navigate the trade-offs between these two. So maybe like social recovery wallets are a design that helps you like kind of find a middle space between there where like the user holds their own keys, but you're not putting all the onus on them of if you lose these keys, you're totally screwed. Like there is a baked in mechanism for helping them recover them. Yeah. And I think like Argent, for example, has done a really good job of finding a middle ground here in having what feels like a very web to native way for me to say, here's my mother's phone number or my brother's email or whatever that I can use to basically do key sharding and have a, a non-custodial experience where by default, Argent steps up saying, we will be the guardian if you nominate no one else. Uh, however, if you don't want us to be the ones in control, you have a substitute. And I think this is where the, the second part of the, I think, uh, answer comes in the more exciting one about path dependency, which is, I think, the internet, I mean, you know, circa 2003, four took a hard left in the direction of convenience, which was let's hide all the complexity away from the users and we'll handle everything for them. And I think there's a special time in crypto, one, because of the original ethos of the space, but two, I think because of what's happening on the regulatory side, I think to a large extent, regulation is crypto's friend, or at least crypto native ideals, because you're having all of these businesses who are refusing to do things that would be easier for businesses, uh, for consumers, because they don't want to be on the hook for it. And so there is a push towards non-custodial solutions, uh, not for UX purposes, but for regulatory purposes. And that's where I think crypto is really the nexus in which you're going to have uh, much better privacy-preserving technologies because there is, for the first time, I think, in the history of the web, aligned incentives between the developer who doesn't want to fucking touch user data and the user who wants to own that data. And so does it fully solve the tension? No, I think the tension will always remain there. And I don't think there'll be any silver bullets in, in, in data privacy. It, that, that tension will always exist, but it opens up the solution space in a way that we haven't had in Web2. And on top of that, you've got stuff like ZKPs and other primitives that are doing an even better job of giving us more tooling as developers uh, to come up with solutions that are both more private and have better UX. Um, so yeah. to the question of why Privy now, I think that's kind of the answer. I think uh, we're having sort of twin moments where as crypto enters mainstream, it's also getting heavily regulated. And so for the first time, I think there's developer demand for more privacy preserving technologies, uh, maybe in the name of privacy, but mostly in the name of uh, sort of liability uh, control. And yeah. uh, that's a really exciting place to be, I think, as, as someone working in, uh, in privacy preserving sort of infrastructure and data infrastructure more generally. Right. And you actually had, um, which I, I'll plug this now, but you have this series of blog posts that I thought were super well written. I think you wrote them in 2021 about thinking through 
the landscape of privacy, how it's evolved over time. And when you get to this point of regulation and how it's impacting things today, you made this point, which I thought was really interesting, which is again, in the absence of like proper infrastructure that developers can really easily plug into, this is also just gonna go into this like weird morass of people complying with the regulation while not actually doing anything. And you had this screenshot of like an NPR GDPR <laughs> thing, which is like I blob of massive blob of text in legalese. And like, yes, I agree. And then the no option was show me the website in plain text, which is like the alternative the user is given. And I and I I was just in Europe for um this like DevConnect uh conference. So this this problem is very alive. Like I probably said yes to your. 10 different GDPR uh, things. And yeah, they're like the, the privacy regulations, like not actually doing anything. This is where the, the, what I mean when I say there's no silver bullet for privacy will remain true. I, I guess maybe two points here. The first is I think Web3 is kind of the only place right now where you can build privacy tooling that is developer tooling and not uh, compliance tooling. I think if we were building Privy in Web2, we would be selling the general counsels, we would be selling to CISOs, we would not be selling to devs. Um, and I think uh, th this is a unique opportunity in Web3, also enabled by the fact that every user has their own cryptographic materials that they're custodying assets with. Everybody has a wallet, which unlocks new product experiences we can have elsewhere. So I guess I, I just wanted to bring this in, which is the fact that I think better privacy experiences online don't just open up sort of the same UX, but uh, more respectful of the users. I think it opens up entirely new UX that we can't even imagine today. So that's stuff I'm excited to see coming from Web3 that I don't think could be coming from Web2. Um, I, I think in the other in the other path, like the, the thing I keep going back to is the fact that Cambridge Analytica, that data breach was not a hack. It was Facebook misconfiguring systems. It was sort of bad systems design and users agreeing to exactly what happened, which is any third party that I'm sharing data with can share my data with third parties. And so I think the onus will always be on developers and app builders to make these decisions. I think we need tooling that makes it easier to do so. Uh, and so this is where I think by not building a protocol, but by building Privy as developer tooling that is um, sort of hosted infrastructure, whilst you know giving the developers the chance or the, and the end users the chance to host their own infrastructure, they don't want to trust us. I think that's really important is giving people optionality. But by giving an option where we host infrastructure for people, we are sort of getting our hands dirty and helping partake and hopefully setting good defaults for developers to take because that question of say, how do you ask users for consent is a really hard one. And the anti-pattern we're seeing because of GDPR and the banner ads or the sort of consent banners at the bottom of web pages that yeah. push you into either like go fuck yourself or here's our product experience, but it's not much of a choice. Um, I think that's what, that's what risks happening as well if we don't design good, good tooling around this. Yeah, it's so bad. Like it's it's it makes no sense. Maybe just describe what Privy is so people kind of know as we continue this conversation and have a have a way to place it on the on the landscape. So Privy is a simple API to manage user data off-chain. Uh, so ultimately Privy takes care of three things for you. It takes care of key management and encryption, it takes care of permissions, and it takes care of storage. And so you have two main calls, privy put and privy get. You add those to your front end. And using that, you can basically say uh, privy put, you pass in a key, like a user wallet address. You pass in a value, say a user's email. 
And you can basically associate an email to wallet address or associate any data structured on structured videos, images, and so on to user wallets um, in a privacy preserving way. What that means is when you call Privy put, uh, Privy basically encrypts all of that data client side in your user's browser, stores the ciphertext. We have no access to the underlying user data. And then as you or your user needs it, um, serves that data back so you can build better UX. So you can have, you know, uh, user profiles that actually take both on-chain and off-chain data to build sort of an experience around that. Um, you know, we talked about the notifications use case and so on, but that's very core. Basically, Privy is a way to add a few lines of code to your front end so you can integrate sensitive data into your product without taking it onto your stack or for that matter, without having to build a backend. Got it. So let's say I'm a Web3 developer. I'm at this fork in the road of do I just completely forsake user data and have and not have notifications built into my site, for example, or do I just go full Web2 and have a client server you know, thing going on with a database that I keep? Instead, now there's this third path open, which is that I integrate the Privy API and it gives me two methods, which is like super easy. And you can basically store data, like all the complexity, the encryption, the permissioning, like all this stuff is kind of abstracted away through this API. But you basically push user data into this external service, which is Privy. And then at any point in the future, through some you know, key management, like handshake stuff, you can get that data back for a particular user. So this is, this is the premise of how this works. Exactly. And today the focus is really let's help developers protect their users and protect themselves. Let's make it that if your uh, stack gets hacked, um, you're not leaking user data left and right, which would, which would just be a harm to everybody. Uh, and let's basically help you do better for your users. And the goal thereafter is to move from sort of a uh, viewpoint of, of right now developer control, meaning the developer sets both the schema, here's the data I need, and the permissions, here's who gets to use it within my company, across my user base, and, and across other apps, to a place where actually the developer still sets the schema, but Privy is under user control. So the end vision here is to move to a place where in the same way that when you turn on Uber on your iPhone, you get a modal that says Uber would like to access your location. Do you want to enable, uh, do you want to give it access? Yes or no. Uh, you would log into Uniswap and it might say Uniswap needs access to your email so they can tell you whether a transaction gets dropped from the mempool. Would you enable them access to your email? Yes or no. And then as a user, you have a control center where you can see what dApps have access to what data of yours and you can revoke that data access. So this is what you've described is exactly where we are, which again is a sort of developer centric world because we think making this easier for developers is the first step. Uh, but moving towards a more B2B to C aspect, which is helping developers communicate around data permissions with their users. How does this play out over time? So different developers, and, and I definitely do want to get into like how things are architected on your end, because I think it would be interesting to also just understand how this data is like being stored and encrypted and like what's going on there. But as a developer, I new user comes in, they authenticate and give me permissions to some of their data. Maybe I'm defining this, this schema of how their data is being stored. This data is like then stored inside the Privy data store and Privy is keeping kind of a, a registry or a list of like all the permissions that each user has given to every application. 
And then over time, when a new application wants to get a new user's email address, the user, for example, wouldn't have to like put that in again, because if that website integrates with Privy, it would just use the same data store. So you kind of get this effect that we have with wallets, which is a user is kind of like carrying their identity and data between different applications. Is that, is that right? And they ultimately are in control of like the permissions and the access control around that. Yeah, that, that's absolutely correct. Um, I guess just to, 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 to touch it up one, one bit, uh, the, the only delta between what you've said and the way the system works today, you know, where if you get Privy API keys today, what will actually be running is just that today we uh, are having the developer set the permissions on behalf of the user. And so yeah. sort of the path from Privy today to Privy tomorrow is, is, is sort of uh, split amongst three axes, at least that's how we're thinking about the product right now. Um, the first is uh, turning things into a user-controlled data store. So moving into a place where the user is the one making permissions decisions. Uh, so that's really ultimately a UX question. Apple today, I think, does the best job of having like notifications, modals, and everything else that works. Uh, and there's a lot of work on the UX front and product design to make this easy and intuitive, but to also help users make good decisions, informed decisions in a way that, say, Facebook didn't. Um, so that's the first path, more user-controlled privy. The second path is a more decentralized privy. Um, so in the, in, the, in the vision that you, you, you shared out, uh, Privy is holding the permissions list. Ultimately, though, we should not have to be trusted. If you don't trust us, you should still be able to use the system where you can nominate another delegate, or better yet, nominate a network to hold that permissions list on your behalf. Um, so there's certainly a view to starting to decentralize our infrastructure, moving from how Privy works today, which is we run HSM's hardware security modules that do key management on behalf of users to a place where we actually plug into the user's own wallets. So users are encrypting their data with the keys that encrypt, that um, safeguard their assets. Uh, but then obviously that means when a user is not online, how does someone get access to that data? How do you decrypt that data? And so this is where you'll need some version of a data delegate to start Privy as that data delegate. Um, but ultimately you should be able to say, you know, I don't trust Privy at all. I do trust Sina, I'm gonna give him access to sort of my right. data delegation keys so, so that he can be the one delegate. Data delegates. Exactly. And then down the line, full networks where we can use threshold encryption in the way that folks like Keep Network or Lit Protocol are doing in order to have actual full networks act as data guardians and watchtowers in a way where you're not actually trusting a single party. So this is the move is we're starting with trust privy to you choose who you trust to you need not trust any single party in order to make this work. Um, so that's a more decentralized privy. And then the third axis is a more integrated privy, which is to say, how do we actually unlock sort of privacy preserving uh, usage of that data within sort of the, the product tooling? And so that is, you know, through the inclusion of things like uh, homomorphic encryption or ZKPs once uh, the tech matures or the right use cases come up um, and through things like building proxy servers where you can actually say, send an email directly from Privy by having a separate server be spun up where the email is decrypted, an email is sent, and then all that data is sort of squashed. And so being able to run computation basically on Privy nodes, where again, to start, we're hosting those. But the idea very quickly is to say, we shouldn't have to be the ones hosting those. In fact, we would much rather not. Uh, and so let's have a marketplace of basically Privy nodes that run certain computations. And you can pick from Henry or from Asta's email provider where Henry's integrated with MailChimp, and this is how he charges, and Asta's integrated with SendGrid, and this is how she charges. And you've basically got these like data engines uh, that, that, that run for you as a user. This is sort of where we're thinking about this.
this is such a fucking huge <laughs> idea. It's it's insane. Um, it's really exciting to think about this future. So, okay, so to make sure I understand. So Prizy today is this like very narrow, simple tool. And it's it's this kind of wedge that is going to open up into a whole world in the future. And this narrow tool today is basically an API you call it, uh, you, you know, push data to it. And it has a centralized data store backed by a key management system that you're running um, that stores only encrypted data and basically pushes, pushes all of like the decryption stuff to the client. And the developer, the developer is your primary user at this point where they're basically defining what sort of data needs to be stored. And they're also defining like the permissions of um, what we want from the user. The user doesn't actually get a view into this or a say on this. And then I, I just feel like it would be helpful for me to retrace what you said. So then there's like these three things there's a, and maybe we should go into them because I feel like these are each very, very deep rabbit holes. So the first thing was in terms of permissioning, which is bringing a view similar to on iOS, where a new app, you know, Apple makes people say what data they're going to use, or when you off with your Gmail, it says what this app needs. You basically want to create a version of this where every developer who's integrating with Privy would basically give a every application would give a little prompts to the user that clearly explains what they're trying to do with the data. And the user can make this educated decision about whether they want to go through with that. Yeah, no, that's absolutely correct. And that, I mean, that's itself a very hard problem to crack, right? Because you have to kind of think about the internals of these different applications and what sorts of things they're doing with the data. And, and then how to, how to build you know, interfaces that are uh, that that build just the right amount of friction, right? Because the issue is, if we build no friction into it, if we uh, allow for this sort of data buffet, then we're back in Web two. Uh, if we build too much friction, then nobody uses any of this tooling, and we're back to Web two as well. So the sort of uh, how do we help developers keep their users informed, and how do we help users make good decisions, but all of this without destroying user experiences? Yeah. But at least there's an analog for this in, in the existing world, like models to learn from. And then, okay, the second thread, which is a very interesting one, is decentralizing Privy, like the actual architecture. So how, yeah, how does it work today behind the scenes? Yeah, and maybe what's helpful is I can give you a single sentence that helps summarize all three of the epics. The first epic about user control is who controls permissions. The second sentence is, is Privy custodial? And the third sentence uh, about the integrations is, is the data useful natively? And on the, on the second one, uh, the short answer is today, Privy is a custodial solution. Whilst from an infrastructure security standpoint, we are non-custodial, meaning it is impossible for anybody in our team to actually read some of the data without basically taking over the entire stack, changing a lot of configurations, like the entire company has to go rogue in order for things to go wrong. Um, the unfortunate truth is Privy can be subpoenaed uh, in order to hand over user data because of how things are architected today. And we want that not to be the case. We want to move towards non-custodial uh, solutions. And for what it's worth, I think there's a lot of, of, of custody theater happening in Web3 of like 
quote unquote non-custodial solutions where you kind of like squint and try and understand how it works. And it is at the end, a custodial solution. We're seeing more and more of that. Um, and, yeah. and that's where we fall today. And so, yeah, just how, how does Privy work today? Like how is it architected under the hood in terms of what is happening with the keys? Where are they being held? Where's the data stored? Yeah, so the data itself is stored today with a cloud provider, um, and namely that's AWS. And you know that that's a decision that I actually think you know in terms of what is the ordering of Privy decentralizing, it's going to be key management and key control first. Well, actually, in, in actuality, it's authentication first. The first step is let us not be dependent on service providers to authenticate users, rather than having to trust a DAP to say, this is in fact, Henry logging on. Let's have Henry log on on his own, thanks to technologies like sign-in of Ethereum um, and other things. And this is how ultimately we unblock access to sort of a global data store that is yours and that follows you around Web3. This data backpack exists because I don't have to rely on a third party to authenticate myself. So that's the first right. piece. So the so second for, piece, first step is user has a data store that's basically portable across different applications and they can log in with that. Exactly. And they don't need a third party to sort of authenticate their login. Yeah. The second piece is around key control, which is uh, user encrypts their own data is and is in charge of understanding who has access over that sort of data encryption and decryption. Today, the way it works is whenever a new customer signs up with Privy, we spin up a new HSM. Uh, so these servers dedicated to key management. And then for each of these customer's users, we have a root key. Um, when a customer calls, and when I say customer, I mean developer, when a, you can see we're, we're a sassy bunch. Uh, when a customer <laughs> calls privy.put, what happens is Privy's client libraries, these are open sourced, basically generate symmetric keys client side in the browser, encrypt the user data under the symmetric keys, and then make a call to the Privy KMS, these HSMs, saying this is the user for whom I want to encrypt data, send me a new sort of wrapper key derived from that root key that I was talking about. So I can basically encrypt the symmetric key under which the data was encrypted itself. So I'll repeat that really quick. Uh, the yeah. data is encrypted under a client-side generated key. This is normal envelope encryption. And then the key that was used to encrypt the data is itself encrypted using this other key that root sits key. In, in RHSM. And the key point, uh, sorry for the pun, <laughs> is that uh, every piece of user data is encrypted under a very unique key. So. Uh, if let's say somebody is lying in wait in your server, you have uh, malware or a breach that only puts at risk, not only just your data as an individual end user, but actually only that piece of data, not all of your data. Uh, and so that's really important is a new key is generated every time a new piece of data comes into Privy. These are the um, symmetric keys in the client. Yeah. yeah. And, and then even the wrapper keys are sort of unique to the piece of data that's being stored. Um, but the idea is that, that, that can't, the, the entire previous system was built completely modularly. So the permission system, the key management system, and the storage system are all modules. And right now, the KMS is these HSMs that Preview runs. Uh, however, down the line, the point is we can swap that out actually for your user's wallet. So the difference now is you get a MetaMask pop-up that says, would you like to you know, encrypt that data? And you're the one basically encrypting that data with uh, the, the APIs that wallets give us. And so we're swapping out our KMS for your very own as a user. This is how we sort of decentralize the system over time. The step afterwards is decentralizing permissions, having the permissions uh, oracle, the permission system, not sit with us, but actually be signed by the user and uh, run on any given node that you want. And then down the line, even run on chain. The reason you wouldn't want to run it on chain today is because 
you don't want to reveal permissions. I think me, you know, putting oh, my right. social security number on chain is uh, all sorts of bad. But me saying um, who has my allow... social security number is also exactly. Bad. I will allow Alice to read it, but not Bob is still not great. And yeah. so uh, the point is, you shouldn't have to trust Privy to run the permission system correctly. You should be able to fork our permissions code and then run it yourself or ask someone else to run it for you if you want. So that's the sort of third thing, but this is sort of logic-gated permissioning rather than cryptography-gated permissioning, which I can talk a bit more about. Okay, so on, on the key management piece, right now the basic architecture is that you're spinning up keys on these hardware security modules that you have, and these keys are used client side to encrypt these like field specific symmetric keys that the user that are that are encrypting the user's data and exactly correct yeah and then over time you're basically going to move to switching out this back end kms key management system that you have with individual user wallets right so a user is using their own hardware wallet or their own metamask to basically like encrypt these keys that are sorted, that are that are being created for each data, each piece of data. That is correct. And I think the idea is to say by default, Privy manages this for you. However, if you don't want us to, we absolutely don't need to. You can you can manage your own infrastructure, you can manage your own key uh, management system, and we integrate easily with wallets so that um, you can do that uh, in, in a very simple way. Yeah. So how, how in, in the current system, because I mean, there are also many other systems in the world that hold a ton of sensitive data, right? Like let's say one password, for example, that's just hosting all the passwords. So there are architectures that people are using for storing sensitive data. And so I'm curious with this like model that you have, like what are, how would you analyze like the, the risk vectors of something like this? So I'm, I'm going to start with a, a cheap answer. And the cheap answer is it's already a hell of a lot better than if you're just dumping that data into Postgres or into anything that you're securing on your own. Because uh, you know maybe the, the claim I will make is Google and Facebook are not very good, in my opinion, at data privacy. And I wouldn't throw both of them into the same bucket, but uh, bear with me. Uh, however, they are very good at data security. It's, it's amazing how well, for the most part, nice. they have secured data. Um, and I guess maybe the first, the, the most Web2 version of the Privy pitch would be to say, you've got these huge companies dedicating, you know, teams, hundred people deep to uh, data security. Let us do that for you. you. It makes no sense for you to build this right. in-house, but also you should be offering the same level of service to your users. And so at the very least, we are taking this data out of your stack and we are encrypting it on a cell level basis. And so this is better than if you threw this in your own stack, even if you, uh, you know, you uh, enable encryption at rest. Uh, here, the data is end-to-end -end encrypted. So, so it's, 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 it's already quite different. In terms of the security posture, there are sort of two attack vectors that I think are really worth looking at, or three. The first is malware. So what if somebody is lying in wait in the user's own browser? Uh, and the answer there is, well, it means the data is leaked, but it would have leaked anyways because the user's typing it in and you, you probably have some version of key logging or something like that. However, it has no implication on other data stored in Privy. Uh, you're not revealing anything else about how Privy works beyond what right. uh, pertains to you as a user and the specific data you've been typing in. The second one is our own data store. And so in our data store, we have encryption at rest, but then underneath that, 
we are getting ciphertext in. And the ciphertext is basically the data blob encrypted and uh, the key itself that was used to encrypt the data also encrypted. And if uh, somebody breaks into the data store and siphons off ciphertext, uh, unless they also have access to the KMS, all they have is, 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 is basically the encrypted uh, data from the data store. Right. Um, now, you know, one of the reasons why I think people shouldn't put encrypted data on chain is because ciphers break over time. Uh, and there's, it's been known that, say, the U.S. government or the Chinese government are uh, taking on and storing ciphertext with the understanding that uh, 50 years from now, they might be able to actually break the encryption and read the underlying data. And so um, that is one of the reasons why actually decentralizing the storage in Privy so that you can run Privy on your own nodes makes it's sense is because we don't want to. Exactly. Right. But nonetheless, today, it's all ciphertext. If you break into the Privy data stores, you don't get access to any underlying, underlying data. Now, the third piece is the KMS. And so the KMS, the short answer is if you can break HSMs, today these are run by cloud providers in secure facilities. Uh, if you can break HSMs, then all bets are off. And basically all security guarantees uh, go down. We you know, are piggyback. We're not, we're not building our own specifically because we want to piggyback off of the learnings of the last 30 years. What we take care of is we take these bricks and we take care of plastering them together in a way that the wall comes out solid. But ultimately, you know, the first rule of cryptography is never roll out your own crypto. We're using sort of best in class systems from Web2 in order to protect this Web3 data. And we are sort of moving through cryptography history as we go. But right now we're in the 70s. Like we are using public key cryptography. We will move on to using proxy re-encryption. And maybe someday we'll get to zero knowledge proofs and threshold cryptography. But uh, today we're very squarely in, in the 70s and 80s in terms of the crypto that we use. Um, with that said, obviously, we're limited by the quality of the infrastructure uh, of these HSMs that are cloud run, which, to be fair, a lot of other services in Web3 use. So maybe we're talking yeah. about it a bit more openly, but everybody uses this stuff. Um, yeah. The last piece is the, is the permissions oracle. And I think this is the, the most interesting one. And this is why this comes next in sort of our decentralization after the KMS, is ultimately, if you control permissions, um, regardless of whether the, the key right. system is working properly, then you control everything. And so I think that is the trust right. factor that we want to eliminate. You can get the system to like different pieces of data if you can exactly. that piece of the, the stack. Exactly. So that's, I think that is the really key part of, you know, having Privy be sort of user-centric, having be a user-controlled data store. This comes down to how the permission system is architected. Yeah. And how is that architected? Um, so we're trying to do like cell level permissions. So I guess that maybe I'll just describe the model really quickly, which is a user has fields. Uh, the user, in a sense, is a row in a database. The fields are columns. And the user can basically give requesters, who are people asking for access to the data, read or write access uh, to certain columns and certain rows. So I get to say, you know, and in this case, this is a developer actually setting these permissions, but it would be the same for the user, which is to say, I get to say Uniswap has access to my email and uh, sound.xyz has access uh, to my phone number and uh, you know I want uh, sushi to have access to my home address or something like that but um, th that's how we're, we're, we're setting these and, and so today that's how it's working and basically we're using the existing sort of infrastructure to enforce uh, the existing cryptographic infrastructure to enforce these permissions yeah and it's just this is so interesting I like this term that you're using of cell-based permissions, which is, I imagine it means like any cross-section of a row and a column, right? Of yeah. a person and a piece of data and who has access to it. And so you're using your existing cryptographic infra 
to secure this this like table basically that keeps all of these permissions together. Yes, and so it's, you it's know, as uh, if you're you're a user of Privy yourself. Is that is that one way to think about it? It's as if you're a developer storing this table of permissions on Privy. Yes, but <laughs> ultimately Privy right now is the one controlling that like permissions table, and so that's the part that we need to change, which is to say. Uh, today, you are trusting Privy to enforce permissions such as you've set them. And this is the part where it'll become really important to make it that uh, Privy cannot lie about the permissions that you've set for it. And so th there's a number of solutions around this in terms of how we evolve the crypto system to do that. But at the simplest level, that might also just mean uh, the developer signs the permissions that it sends over to Privy. So Privy, you know, sort of justifying the permissions decisions it makes I cannot lie about what the developer asked in the first place. We can't spoof and say, well, no, CNET did give us access to this because you, we have a signature that shows that you didn't. Um, and so, you know, maybe I'm going to uh, get back to a product feature level. Uh, the first step we're taking on sort of moving towards trustlessness, which is a term I hate as it happens, but in moving towards trustlessness. For Why? The because, it's, because it's on a spectrum usually. And, and exactly. I think trustlessness thing. implies that there is such a thing as a trustless system and there isn't. It's a question yeah. of what trade-offs you're making. But in moving towards the trustless end of the spectrum, the first thing we're going to do is basically build auditing logs so that users can verify how has their data been used. And so, you know, if you zoom all the way back out now to the top level system, what this means is a privacy policy that doesn't suck. Instead of going to a website and seeing, hey, here are ways in which we might use your data and types of data we might collect about you. You're seeing, hey, here's the exact data we have on you. And here's how it's been accessed over the last 30 days in a non-spoofable way. Um, so that's that's how we're thinking about basically moving and walking that line wow. towards trustlessness is let's start by making these systems verifiable and then let's hand over control to the people that should uh, so long as we build sort of infrastructure that makes it easy for them to control it rather than it being the fuck you that GDPR is sort of pushing onto developers. Yeah. Wow. Um, that makes a lot of sense. So these auditing, and that's, that's, a, that's such a cool idea of you can go to a place and see every time a third party has accessed a piece of your data because anytime that they do that, there's this like cryptographic handshake that's happening and there's a record of it. And there's this, this idea of basically transparency is a disinfectant type thing of just exactly. seeing what's happening, just making that exchange transparent will have very positive downstream effects. And I, I'm, gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna maybe pop this up to a more philosophical question, but I think to me, this is where say the DAO hack is such an interesting thing. I think, you know, looking back on it now, a few years after the fact, um, to me, the truth of it is less so code is law, which obviously didn't end up being true, but it's the transparency in these systems allow us to make better decisions yeah. by being a disinfectant and by forcing us to have the tough conversations that we wouldn't have to have in opaque systems. That, that all makes a ton of sense. At a high level, I think we've talked about the key management and the encryption. And my, my very hand wavy takeaway is that you've thought through your shit. <laughs> yeah. And this is just kind of like what it's all starting with. And it's, it's going to further decentralized over time. Yeah. And I actually, you know, this is something I hadn't thought as much about before I got into Privy, but the, the sort of two orthogonal questions of who should control 
And how can we ensure that the system is, is doing what they think they're doing? Um, those are two orthogonal questions that I think are often lumped together. But this is why for us sort of decentralizing privy, meaning uh, giving you assurances that the system is doing what it says it's doing, uh, is sort of a separate epic from uh, who actually gets to like, you know, uh, type in settings for the system and make decisions right. around permissions. Yeah. And so the, the third piece of the puzzle, which we haven't talked about, is storage. Yes. Um, and frankly, I think it's the least interesting. So now I yeah. duck because of my, my protocol labs days, which were I spent a lot thinking about storage. <laughs> um, but in a sense, this is maybe the, 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 the hot take I have, which is I think there's a bit too much decentralization zealotry in Web3. I think decentralization is awesome. And I think certainly the ideals behind data sovereignty and ownership are central to what Web3 means to me. Uh, but I think, you know, I have too many conversations where people ask me, but is it on chain? I'm like, but that's not the right question. Uh, and so, you know, to me, the question of who controls the system is deeply important and decentralization has a role to play here. And like decentralizing infrastructure is really important there. Um, but I think in terms of storage, um, the threat model we have is data leakage, is will your data end up all over the internet with, without you wanting to? It is not censorship resistance, which is to say, can a third party withhold data from you? Um, and so to that end, actually using centralized storage, I think is a very sensible decision that we're making, which is to say, we're putting the data in the cloud, it's encrypted end to end. And the question is who controls the encryption keys? Now, uh, down the line, obviously we want to enable you to plug in your own sort of data module. So if you don't want to use our cloud account, if you want to plug in your own sort of uh, virtual private uh, network, or if you want to, uh, sorry, virtual private cloud, or if you want to use the server in your basement, or if you want to use the IPFS network, you should absolutely be able to do all of these things. However, uh, I think the sort of clear and present danger is about data leakage more so than censorship resistance. Maybe yeah. the, the trite point I can make here is a lot of what people want to store with Privy is off-chain data, meaning real-world data. And the, the honest answer is I know my SSN. Even if company X right. refuses to serve me in my SSN, I still have it. So there's a path back from that. Um, the real fear, though, is that everybody else also knows my SSN. Though, uh, obviously, we want to tackle sort of data silos by giving users control over who can access data. Again, yeah. I think uh, it makes sense to start with centralized storage. Yeah. So you've basically, you're making a judgment that although censorship resistance is important and an ideal that we all aspire to, the real like threat vector for this sort of data is not censorship resistance, but that data just leaking and being plastered all over the internet. And like, this is, and, and then again, there's like the point of comparison of like, what are people are doing already today? What are developers doing today? And they're just putting it on their own servers in a Postgres database, right? So that's like the point of comparison. But um, I mean, I yeah, and, and I like the point you make around censorship resistance of a lot of this data is stuff that the user knows and can basically re-input re into the system on demand or like kind of connect the, connect the dots another way. And does that kind of imply that you envision Privy being primarily used for this like identity level data or like at the intersection of a person and like an application rather than I'm building a decentralized messenger and I need to store like every message in the system in a private way? 
Yeah, no, that's a really, really, really good question. And the short answer is certainly this sort of identity and identity cross app intersection is where we started off our thinking. We're doing a lot of work now around uh, specifically messengers, decentralized social networks, and you know maybe the notion of a data pod where uh, you know I, I think there are applications out there. Uh, I guess I'll, I'll name check another that I really like, like Farcaster, who have. Uh, a really good model around like sufficiently decentralized data stores where the social graph lives online. And then uh, I think we think a lot like them or they think a lot like us, which is to say by default, they give you infrastructure to manage as it were your own casts. Uh, but if you don't want them to be the ones managing it, you have an ability to swap out the storage for something you control yourself. Um, right. And so the, the, the short answer is hopefully we will do all of these in time. However, to start with, it seems to me like the, the bigger threat is the censorship resistance uh, with, sorry, the bigger threat is the data leakage um, yeah. with the one caveat, which is to say that interoperability is extremely important. So we need to give users a way to port their data um, from exist. Web3 service to Web3 service. Got it. And so the takeaway being that on the storage piece, there is basically a server set of servers that are holding all of this all of this encrypted data, there's cloud providers. And the fact that that data is like encrypted using all these mechanisms we've talked about is the real value prop at this point. And over time, you know, that potentially leaves the vector of like censorship resistance. Like, I don't know if the US government wants to like do something to make this data inaccessible, they probably maybe have a vector towards doing that. But because you've built this system in a modular way where the three pieces kind of plug in together, you can just kind of change how the data is stored while it remains interoperable with the rest of it. Yeah, and I think you know there, there's a really interesting question here around, and this is something we, we thought a lot about at PL as well, which was like, uh, how do we help build a system that emphasizes not just decentralization insofar as the entities running uh, services, but actually emphasizes uh, decentralization in terms of the underlying hardware on which this stuff is run. And, uh, you know, to some extent, I would, I would question, you know, it's one thing to put your data on a peer-to-peer -peer network, but who is running the peer-to-peer -peer nodes? And basically how right. much, if, if your threat model is the U.S. government, how do you know that the peers that you're storing data on are not also running in a cloud? And so this is the distinction between, I guess, uh, economic decentralization, who are the actors making decisions around this versus infrastructure decentralization. And uh, I, I agree with you, I think down the line, the, the, the core step, if that is your, your, your threat model, if your threat model is getting ha having a government come after you, uh, then you should run all of your own infra, uh, in yeah. my opinion. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a lot of decentralization theater and a lot of fuzzy thinking that conflates like the different layers of the stack and what's actually happening and just calling something decentralized. Whereas, I mean, it, it makes me think of Balaji's kind of exploration and post back in the day where he was talking about a metric for decentralization and looking at, you know, the number of independent um, client implementations for different blockchains and the number of developers on each of those and where the nodes are being run. And really it's like the, the level of decentralization is the weakest link in that stack, um, in, in that chain. But this is where, and frankly, this is where I'll come in with, with my, uh, my, my most libertarian ideal, which is at the end of the day, the only solve for this is you know, transparency and user choice. 
yeah. I don't know that we can predict how the centralization will turn out and basically on what sort of layers of the stack uh, the centralization will play out well and on what layers it'll, it'll, it'll fall short. I think the best we can do is build a system that is composable so that as the world evolves, we give our users optionality and we allow them to tune the system so it fits their preferences and their risk models. Yeah. And yeah, and the world is evolving. There's a lot of very smart people working on the different pieces of this puzzle. And so building in a modular way lets you kind of plug into these new things as they develop. Yeah, and I think for, for what it's worth, maybe I'll go on attention for one second. I think this is one of the most exciting things that I've been seeing is just the amount of work happening around self-sovereign identity uh, and the amount of work happening around Web3 data. And I think we're uh, addressing a, a given segment of it through uh, this notion of, of, of secure private off-chain data storage as a complement to on-chain storage. But there's a lot of composability networks and folks doing fantastic job work there. And one of the things I'm so excited to watch play out is really uh, how this stack will come together. The ISO layering really hasn't sort of landed yet. And I think we're sort of in the state post Big Bang where like matter is plasma and we're starting to see granules of planets forming. And so I'm, I'm excited to see what the ecosystems end up looking like and how as a builder in the space, I build a stack that includes user data uh, in Web3, you know, five years from now. Yeah. And so I think at this point in, in the journey of Web3, I mean, if you're building a product slash protocol, which a lot of people are, you know, Uniswap is both, you know, it has a front end and then it's smart contract system that's running behind it. You could use Privy very easily through these two APIs to store the user's private data and bake it in, in a way that is much, much more secure than you doing it them yourself. And that leans into all of the composability that comes from that, that, that it's this user's particular data that in time they'll be able to kind of like tie it directly to their address. And yeah, and I think it's a very worthwhile path for people to think about. Exactly. And I think the, the idea down the line is, is you can have an honest conversation with your users with delightful UX about their data, where you actually look them in the eye and say, this is how things are being handled. Uh, and, and, and not have to worry about the fact, you know, this is sort of maybe the, the building against developer guilt. The number of developers I talk to who are kind of, you know, uh, wincing a little bit, knowing, ah, I could be doing better for my users, uh, yeah. but I'll figure it out once I have product market fit. And then that turns into, I'll figure it out once I'm done scaling this product. And, uh, and it ends up never happening and, and completely screwing over both the products that they've worked so hard on and more importantly, their users. So I think the idea is, uh, can we give you tooling that allows you to, uh, at its base and at its core, do a much better job on your own, but also sort of bring users back into the loop so they can exercise control over their own data decisions. Yeah. How, how do you think about how such a developer would run analytics or think through like think through how their product is being used like try to glean information and insights from that man that is such a good question um and one that i have only the beginnings of a response to i think uh, data analytics and privacy preserving analytics in web3 is a huge space uh, that's been underexplored 
And I think it exists across, you know, levels such as like public intelligence, what I might call like, which is like the whole block explorer space right. that I think we've only started scratching the surface on. I think telemetry and understanding actually how do the peer-to-peer networks. And I think MEV, uh, and this is a weird statement to make, but MEV to me is a version of blockchain telemetry, which is what happens in the dark space between mm-hmm. the mempool and the transactions and what happens on chain. I think the same tr- mm-hmm. thing is true in terms of who's running nodes, where are nodes located? Um, there's this fascinating thing, uh, I think a couple of years ago, where there was a huge power outage in a region of China, I forget which, and uh, and Bitcoin's hash rate went down by a sizable fraction. And as the first time we were like, oh, that's where the nodes are being run. And I think like that's fascinating. Um, yeah. And then the third area obviously is uh, data analytics for end users, uh, understanding who is accessing my protocol from my website, from my mobile app, through partner integrations into my smart contract, which partner integrations, um, or uh, through my smart contract directly. And the short answer is I think Privy as a key value store, as a encrypted by default key value store has some answers to bring there. However, I think uh, you need more abstractions on top of such a key value store in order to build sort of easy to use analytics for developers. It's not our focus today, but you know, maybe shout out to everybody uh, listening. If you are thinking about data analytics for Web3, uh, I think we would love to help you build because uh, doing this in a way that respects users and their privacy is extraordinarily hard and um, and, and I think extraordinarily worthwhile so developers can keep building better products. Yeah. Yeah, there is, it's almost like we need an entirely kind of new stack built on a new fundamentally different architecture of like how data is like flowing in an application. C- completely sort of across sort of clients on and off chain systems but then there's the you know we I, I feel like every path leads back to rome and in this case rome is identity there's also the question of how do you define a user right my ox1 my ethereum address or if i log in through uh solana uh can i actually link my solana wallet with my eth wallet how do i do that this is something privy has thought a lot about and actually we have a data linkage api uh, a wallet linkage api that allows you to link multiple wallets together in a privacy preserving way um but then beyond that there's a question of do I actually want that linkage to be made public and to whom? Uh, I have a different DeFi identity than I have an NFT identity. And how should that be taken into account by analytics uh, providers in the space? Uh, ultimately, this is frankly a whole bag that so far we've not touched uh, where yeah. I think, again, there's really interesting things to be built, but uh, but is a bit outside of our purview. Yeah. And, and again, what I kind of like about this approach is that it's it's starting from the point of view, from the place of where is their usage today? Like what are specific applications that need something like this today? And then kind of backs into this larger vision. Because I think a lot of people, myself included for a short period in 2018, have thought about these questions of like identity, like reputation, like all, and uh, you know, it just doesn't work if you try to approach it in the abstract and design this like magnificent uh you know a system that all the pieces are gonna plug into because uh, one there's just like a lot of uncertainty in how all of it evolves and then two you kind of need to get adoption and like systems in the real world just evolve from uh, you know individual threads that have grown in complexity over time and I, I think this is, you know, uh, to, to, to get spicy and, and double down on what you said, I completely agree. I think most developers don't wake up in the morning thinking, how do I solve identity? 
uh, except maybe those working on identity solutions. Um, I think most developers wake up in the morning thinking, how do I build a really delightful tool for my users? And how do I you know, solve problem X? How can I send notifications to my users? Ah, I really don't want to touch this you know, PII and this information that puts my users at risk. Um, and so that's the problem we're trying to solve for today. And frankly, this is why, again, uh, transparency is maybe the sort of uh, core thing that we're gonna that we're, we're trying to build with in mind, making sure the systems are auditable before they're decentralized, making sure they're auditable, um, so that as we make mistakes, and it's it's too complicated a space for mistakes not to be made, um, we we can be called out and we can improve, and uh, ultimately the system is is open source, so that uh, if you don't like the way we're running it, you can run it yourself, and we make it easy for you to do so. Yeah. How, what's your personal experience of working on Privy been like? Are you, are you enjoying it? <laughs> what, what has been particularly surprising or, or strange about this journey so far? So the biggest delight I get, I think, is working with uh, my co-founder, Asta. Uh, she comes from the self-driving car world. And so we were both thinking about a lot of the same sort of data infrastructure and privacy problems. I was thinking about it in Web3. She was thinking about it in uh, sort of uh, more Web2 lands and um, sort of merging forces and working together on this in a Web3 native way has been such a delight. And I think a really good compliment, like we, 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 you know, we have a, a zealot and a convert and it's been a lot of fun uh, to see sort of Web3 through uh, new eyes. Uh, and at this point, I would say she's a, uh, she, she's a grizzled veteran, but like, you know, <laughs> even say wallets, I, I, I started using new mobile wallets like last month because I realized, fuck, there's all these wallets that exist now that I just didn't know about. And I have my old system with like my hardware wallet and my like way in which I do things that I developed in like 2017. And I now realize, wow, the space is like light years away from this. Uh, and so maybe that's, you know, first, the delight of working with Asta. Second, the ability to see the space sort of with new eyes as I dive deeper into what the UX of the space is like. Um, and then I, I think uh, one of the things I find really interesting going back to the conversation is that tension though between sort of uh, protocol level thinking uh, and product level thinking in Web3. And, uh, and I just, I find it very easy to sort of fall back on what I know from, from protocol labs in thinking about things at a systems level rather than at a, what is the problem I'm trying to solve for developers right now? Totally. And I think that's one of the unique strengths that you have is that you can kind of fluidly go back and forth between these two worlds, whereas most people are kind of like primarily approaching the world from one of them. I, I, I hope you're right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and this problem of upgrading your own wallet setup is one that I definitely resonate with. And I, I think I'm squarely stuck in the 2017 paradigm and I've had it on my to-do list to think about how to do this. So I feel like if you write a blog post around that, you'd make a very small subset of people <laughs> incredibly happy. I've been uh, I've been thinking about doing this actually for a little bit, which was like, here's a very simple action and let's run through it with like these six different wallets and compare experiences. So uh, oh, you've given me the push I need to do it. Yeah. How I, I'm curious when it comes to your co-founder, Asta, because I, I also read this blog post that you've written around questions to ask your co-founder and like, and it, it was, it was like a number of years ago and you've founded a company before you've been thinking about these sorts of things for a while. Um, how would you describe your relationship together? What's been 
Um, yeah, what, what could you share about that? The first thing I'll say is I think there are no good rules here. So whatever I'm about to share is is, is basically uh, useful insofar as it's informed my personal journey. But one thing I'm a bit allergic to is the sort of uh, modeling out of relationships or like this is what it takes to be a good co-founder that like Silicon Valley is so fond of. Um, so, you know, ultimately to each their own. But I guess I'll talk about what our relationship has been like. I think one of the things we did really well early on was investing in trust and in communications. And so when we met, we weren't really, we were both, I think, on our way to building a company on our own. And we just really liked each other. And we're, I, at least I was extraordinarily impressed with her and like admirative of, of her intellect and like hunger and all of these things. And I was like, fuck, I really want to work with this person. I will be better yeah. at, and whatever I build will How, be better. And, and why kind person. of a context did you meet? We, we got introduced because we were thinking around the same space. So a common friend got basically it. put us in touch saying, you were both thinking about data privacy. You should chat. Uh, maybe at some point you'll want to work together. And we had a first call and I hung up and I was like, oh no, like we need to have a second call ASAP. <laughs> and yeah. we basically ended up talking every day for like a week or two uh, before oh, saying, well, let's, let's get serious. Do we want to build this together? And then uh, she lived at S in SF at the time. I, I lived in New York. I flew out there and we basically spent a week together uh, doing what I would call like hardcore therapy. Like we were uh, doing walking and talking and working through all of the uh, things that are really not fun to talk about. And I think what I've, what, what I've learned is in the fire, in the heat of the moment, when you're working on the product, it can be super easy to have everything be about the product and kind of forget the means of communication that you have with your co-founder or with your team. And so we just invested up front, not working on a product, but really talking about how do we talk about things? How do we disagree? Like, if I say this, is it hurtful? Uh, am I being a dick right now? Or uh, like, but, but building up the trust, that means that today uh, it is, I think, really easy for us to hop into uh, you know, a, a channel after a meeting and saying, oh, I didn't like this, or I really like this, but it never feels personal in the way like we're attacking each other because we've built uh, the sort of communication pattern that allows us to be very earnest with each other. And that just like saves us a lot of time. So I guess maybe the, the best thing I can say about our relationship beyond her being, you know, amazing in general is the fact that it, it feels very safe. And I think yeah. that sense of psychological safety around the, your co-founder means you can actually focus on the fucking product and on your users, which is what you should be focused on. And where you, yeah, hundred, hundred percent agree. And the, the level of trust you have together is it, it allows you to communicate with much more efficacy. Uh, you, you can communicate knowing that this person knows that you're coming from a good place. Um, well, and there's no, there's no 3D chess happening. I think we're both checkers players when it comes to communicating together, which is, <laughs> yeah. you know, just saves a lot of time. Um, they, she brought in this, this cultural point. So she used to work at Aurora. And I guess a fun fact about Privy is that uh, most of our team today comes from self-driving. Uh, we've got people from Cruise and Aurora and, and Neuro. So it's, 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 it's really fun. Uh, to, I know nothing about ML and self-driving, so it's really fun to be a part of it. Yeah. Um, but um, one of the things that she brought that I thought was really great sort of point of culture to have at a company is assume the best in others. When people come with an idea, um, start off assuming the best. And, um, and I think that that's something that, that we've, been, we've been working with internally that's been super, super helpful. Yeah kind of to this, to this week that you spent together talking about things. Cause it's, I mean, it's, 
probably the most important decision in the lifetime of a company, like who, who you're starting it with. And I'm curious, like, were you talking about these like meta level points of like, how do we communicate or, you know, my, my sense has been that you can kind of only really get a read on these things by going through an actual experience together and seeing how it happens in practice. So like working on a project together is a very good way to, to get a sense for the underlying principles that this person holds to. But I'm curious if you found an effective way of like unpacking the, the roots data itself. The short answer is I agree with you. And we weren't just talking about meta level stuff, to be honest, we also just put the sort of guts of company building up front. What should equity split be like? What should titles be? What will each person be working on? And actually like uh, talking about all the very uncomfortable subjects up front. And maybe it was helped by the fact that we just didn't know each other before. Had we been close friends? And I think this is one of the pitfalls is when you work with a really close friend, you already have uh, a language with that person uh, on which you work as a co-founder. And sometimes it is the same language as the language of like you know, working together. And sometimes it's not, but it's very easy to actually mistake one for the other and underinvest in the hard conversations when working with friends. And so uh, maybe it was helped by the fact that we were clearly here to figure one thing out, which was, do we want to work together? Do we want to sort of saddle each other's sort of product aspirations to one another? And, you know, I, I'm a, maybe a, a deep co-founder romantic, but I think ultimately the moment you take on a co-founder, the product's not really your own anymore. The product is like you're co-parenting it with whoever you work with. And that like, obviously is a, is a huge amount of trust to put in someone. Um, so some of it was product conversations. Um, some of it were tactical conversations around say fundraising. Some of it were sort of guts conversations around equity ownership, uh, ways in which decisions are made and so on and so forth. And then I think maybe my last thing is I really like the image of uh, exponential backoffs in uh, linked lists uh, in computer science. And like, to me, there's sort of an exponential backoff as you work on an idea and as you work with a, a partner, which is initially, you know, commit to a day, you know, after that first call we had together, we were committing to having a second call. And then maybe after the second call, we were committing to another two. And after the next two, we're about to another four. And basically by the time we flew out, we were committing to, let's try and make this work for two months. Um, and, and then, you know, at some point you kind of forget about the exponential back off and you're just doing it. But, uh, but I think sort of incremental, uh, incrementally longer commitments is kind of the way in which I've found not to overthink things at the end of the day, I don't need to, you know, sign in blood that this is all I'll be, you know, uh, doing forever. The moment I meet someone, uh, that trust can come over time. It just needs to have enough structure that we're going through the tough things up front. Awesome. Well, we've been talking for a while, so I think this is a good place to close. Thanks so, so much, man. Thank you so much. Thanks for, for, for having me on. And, and yeah, I love, I mean, I love all this. I'm really thankful to be a part of, uh, of these things. I also, I don't know if this is a, a thing you're allowed to say, but I think the opening jingle is fucking dope. Uh, so <laughs> as well. 